0: Welcome to Every Quarter, The Voice of Andover, Phillips Academy's official podcast where we share the compelling stories and ideas of our faculty, alumni, students, and distinguished campus guests. Our monthly show features candid conversations on current events, academia, and Andover's connection to important matters happening around the world. Ji Sung Park, Andover class of 2004, is an assistant professor at UCLA. He has joint appointments at the Luskin School of Public Affairs and the Fielding School of Public Health. He is also the founder and co director of Sense and Sustainability, a nonprofit dedicated to cultivating leaders with a holistic understanding of sustainability and equipping them with skills and knowledge necessary to pursue solutions. Park's introductory economics course at Andover gave him an entirely new lens to view the world through which he recognized the urgency of climate change and that economics could be a tool for helping people better understand and take action against its disastrous effects. After Andover, Park attended Columbia University and later Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. He then moved on to Harvard, where his groundbreaking research shed light on how climate change will affect human productivity and economic health.
1: Hey everyone, this is Neil Evans, Associate Director of Digital Communications at Andover, and I am here today with Jisung Park, Class of 2004. Welcome, Jisung.
2: Thank you, Neil. It's good to be back.
1: Yes, you were here for reunion. That's right. It is your 15th. Fifteen. What are the vibes that are coming over you right now? Oh, man.
2: Uh, aside from the jet lag, because I'm <laughs> flying in from California, um, although I guess there are people who are coming in from much farther, just Gratitude. You know, um, that is the first word that comes to mind. So much gratitude for not just the memories, but just a, an appreciation of of, of what of how special uh, the time we got to spend here was. Uh, I'm here with a, a couple of uh, my, my uh, dorm sweetmates mates from Feast. Nice. Um, we, you know, we lived in the same dorm all three years, and we've kept in touch, and we, we speak about how... Um, ju- just how much we enjoyed and appreciated and grew from the three years we had here. And so, yeah, gratitude is the first word. And then also just excited to see people I haven't seen, right, in, sure. in 15 years and and uh, their memories in every little nook and cranny, right, that Sorry. you can only really recollect when you're uh, physically here. So, yeah.
1: So, so what initially brought you to Andover?
2: What initially brought me to Andover? Um, so I... I grew up in, in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, my dad did his PhD there. We lived in Seoul, Korea for a bit, moved back to Kansas. I don't think any of us uh, saw ourselves living the rest of our lives in Kansas. So uh, as I was, uh, I guess, graduating out of junior high, as we called it, um, you know, I was trying to make a decision about where, where do we go next, and one of my cousins had gone. Uh, to a boarding school in the the Northeast. I had no idea what I was getting into, right? Absolutely no idea. I was very fortunate to to get in, and and then when we visited a couple of schools, I won't name the competitors, (laughs) uh, but, uh, man, it was just like a 100% clear choice. Um, We visited Andover. Something about the vibe. It just felt like good people, happy people, working really hard but in a non-competitive way and and that was my vibe so i said yeah I, I i'd love to be here cool but you know we didn't really know what we were getting into if i'm being honest yeah yeah
1: so how did that uh maturation evolve over your time here um, meeting friends taking classes sort of charting that course for where you are now
2: yeah i mean i was telling you know i was telling um uh, patrick callahan he's my year and and his fiance on the car ride over here just how vividly i remember that first day where you have your first you know we were new lowers uh 10th graders and you know you arrive bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and you go to that first all-school meeting in the chapel and uh you walk out of the chapel and you have all the blue keys right cheering you on and and welcoming you um so I guess immediately I fell in love with the community. I fell in love with the, the micro-community that was Feast. Uh, we happened to have almost everyone that year was new, whether it was new lowers or, or, or new uppers. And so I think that helped us to, to, to bond. Um, but also just with the Andover community generally, I just, uh, yeah, it just felt like I I'd found my element. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still remember writing in my journal... Like if I can simply survive the academics, I will be happy like i was you know I was really intimidated by how smart everyone was and 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 how high the uh, academic standard was um, but I guess it, it didn't really phase me to the in the sense that everyone was so supportive though um and we could talk about mr ventry i mean he was my house he was one of my house counselors. At the time, but he you know, he epitomizes the um, the sincerity and genuineness of the support that the faculty here bring. At least that's how I experienced it. And so, I mean, who is it? Who is it that says uh, all all history is revisionist, especially personal history? So I don't want to be too revisionist here, but I feel like it was uh, it was a a tough initial transition, but. In overall, a pretty organic one. Um, yeah, I mean, by senior year, I was I was just really, really sad to leave. Yeah.
1: Well, you're back, so <laughs> no sadness this weekend. Um, Older,
2: not much wiser, but definitely, yeah.
1: <laughs> you were a blue key, right?
2: I was. What was your favorite was. cheer? Ooh, that's a tough one, Neil. Ah, um, oh, man. I mean, what do we eat? Red meat, uh, how do we like it raw is always, it's good. Uh, I like the one, I, I don't know what it was called, but there was one where we'd like count down. Yeah, the 5 4, five, three, four 3 2 And then the silent. And thing. the silent one. Yeah. I, like I, I like that in part because at least some, but, like one person would always screw up the one. And so it was always funny. Yeah.
1: No, that, that one still going on. It's still going? It's still going strong. Do the
2: blue keys still wear the skirts? Yep.
1: Nice. Yep. All Can't blue, get rid of that. Face paint, skirts. Awesome. All good. Blue sharks? Not as much. That okay. kind of left with Mr. Chase. Got it. Um, but it's probably
2: better from a public health standpoint. <laughs> I'm sure there's like sugar. 50 grams of sugar per shark. We had like <laughs> yeah. 20 of those. Yeah.
1: So um, after Andover, you go on to college. You end up becoming a Rhodes Scholar. Right. And sort of develop an uh, interest in economics. I do. Talk, talk me through that a little bit.
2: Sure. You know, uh, again, not to do, be too revisionist again, but this is, this is factual. Um, my interest in economics started here. So I still remember I had a conversation with my academic advisor, uh, I guess, uh, man, I'm embarrassed, junior year, uh, upper yeah, year, sure. going into senior year, and I never even, tr- I didn't even know what economics meant. And my, my advisor said, well, based on what you've told me about your interests, you might enjoy economics. And so I took... Uh, econ senior year, first with uh, Mr. Perry, Carol Perry, and then Dr. Shaw. And I just I just fell in love with the way that they um, used economics as a lens of understanding the world. It was so cool. And it turns out it was very atypical. Hmm. Most people have, as their first econ class, something that is much more theoretical, much less grounded in the real world. Um, you know, Both Mr. Perry and Dr. Shaw would start class having us read an op-ed or an article from the New York Times and then draw out, okay, you know, what does this tell us about trade and how do we want to understand it, and then went into the graphs and the math. And so that was, I guess, because I had been introduced to economics that way, I found it to be really compelling. A lot of people, it goes the reverse. You know, you start with the graphs and then maybe you learn about the the real-world application. Um... But yeah, in part because of that experience, I, I decided to major in economics at Columbia. Um, I was always really interested in the environment, uh, environmental sustainability, and uh, luckily uh, found advisors at Columbia who, who helped show that you, know, you could use economics as a tool to better understand environmental sustainability problems, uh, in particular climate change. And, I mean, the Rhodes Scholarship thing is, you know, no one, no one, no one can or should plan for that. It's just, uh, it's, it's more an indication of, of an accumulation of luck than anything, at least that's how I feel about it. And so, um, yeah, that, that coming out of senior year, uh, did a master's degree at Oxford uh, in, in environmental change, uh, and one in development economics, and and all the way through i mean uh, uh the interest in in trying to use economic uh economics to better understand our environmental sustainability challenges uh only grew um yeah now now i'm a professor in economics sure. which yeah. feels kind of weird to say that especially here um now yeah. um but yeah that's how it evolved what more can i say
1: <laughs> i don't know so <laughs> maybe give me a, a specific example of how uh, climate change is you know, related to an economic issue, whether it be sure. uh, disaster relief or crops growing or, I don't know, I'm doing a really poor job. No, 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 no. <laughs> I
2: mean, look, it, 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 it's you and actually the rest of the, well, popular media, I think, has a, has a tough time understanding. Climate change is such a broad problem, sure. right? Um, many ways you could you could slice it. But let me, so one way, couple of ways, right? One is um, trying to think about how climate change will affect society. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have always thought that there are obviously clear limits to putting dollar values on things. But to the extent that at the end of the day, we're making policymakers have to decide between a suite of different policies, and so if if we're able to better quantify, okay, in a in a world that is, right, two degrees Celsius hotter, which really translates into you know thirty, forty, fifty more days a year in some places with temperatures that are dangerously hot, what does that actually mean for economic productivity, economic well-being, um, our health, and how do we sort of um, quantify those damages in such a way that we can, like, make, you know, understand how much we should be willing to invest now, right? It sort of underscores the urgency of the problem. Like, that's one aspect. Yeah. Um, but another is that, you know, climate change is the ultimate global market failure, mm. right? It's, it's yes, there's a moral dimension to it, but I see it primarily as it's like the combined result of a series of uh, of decisions that, you know, the 8 billion people on this planet make, um, maybe sometimes out of greed, but mostly just because the systems that we're in um, sort of bias things toward, right, toward more carbon pollution, Uh, I think of it as a market failure. And so if you think of it as a market failure, then you think about, okay, well, how do you solve that market failure? And economics has a lot to say about how you can um, effectively... uh, solve market failures without, you know, breaking the bank, so to speak.
1: Sure. Right? And uh, the Green New Deal is sort of a hot topic. Yeah, right now. yeah. Hey, I like what
2: you did with the the hot.
1: Maybe is there hope for
2: us? Ah this could just be that I'm I'm an optimistic guy, but I think absolutely I think there's absolutely hope and and it's hard to have hope when every other article you see in the news or on your Twitter feed or whatever about climate change is along the lines of, oh, and by the way, it's even worse than we thought. Or, you know, you see the polar bear, like, starving and on a melting ice sheet, and you see, you know, devastating images of, of hurricanes and floods and extreme heat, you know, killing thousands of people. Um, but I'm optimistic because it's been actually really interesting to see So comparing when I started, when I graduated from Andover Mm -hmm. versus now, 15 years, uh, thinking about the level of public understanding, awareness, and quality of discourse, especially internationally, the U.S. is kind of an exception. We have a weird, I think in part because of the domestic politics and what climate change symbolizes, Mm -hmm. Um, but globally the sea change in level of awareness and willingness to engage about climate policy issues I think is very comforting. Yes, international agreements are tough. They were never easy. Um, But you see... so I'll end with this, because I could keep going. Even in the U.S., even despite what many would argue uh, are just completely... um, uh, anti-science non, non at least from a climate change st- standpoint nonsensical um, policy choices at the federal level you see so many state and local city governments trying to step in to stop the gap. To me that signifies a, a, a broader willingness to, to do what we can. In fact the numbers suggest that the, the majority of Americans now believe that climate change is a phenomenon and that it is a human-caused phenomenon, that we should do something about it. That wasn't the case 10 years ago, right? So I'm optimistic. Well, I mean, like, and then what's the value of being pessimistic anyway? Like, how is that going to help? So. Yep.
1: Um, so you mentioned earlier you're now an assistant professor at UCLA. What, yes. what brought you to, to teaching? And sort of talk to me about that role in your life right now.
2: Sure, so I'm very, uh, my wife and I are very happy and grateful to be in in Southern California. Uh, We just moved out there about two years ago. Uh, We both work at UCLA. Um, I mean, the move to UCLA was was, uh, a a fortunate one in that um, a job opened up for someone who teaches public policy, uh, in particular with an angle toward environmental uh, issues. Uh, and that's kind of what I do. Um, I don't think I knew that I wanted to teach or be a professor. Certainly, 15 years ago, when I was graduating from Andover, I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, but I guess I don't know. You along the way, the, it, it, as I you know, as I was doing my PhD at Harvard, uh, and even before that, I got the feeling that especially for issues like climate change, for environmental sustainability issues more generally, uh, there's a lot of noise. There are a lot of opinions, and it's, it's difficult to keep the facts straight, but it's an area where keeping the facts straight really, really matters. And so I wanted to see if I could not add to the noise uh, which meant that you know I wanted to get as rigorous a training as possible and 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 contribute to the research frontier, but in a way that hopefully has an impact on policy. I mean that that's like that's the aspiration. That's where I'm trying right. to get to. Of course. Um, and I'm I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to to try.
1: Excellent. You mentioned your wife. You are yep. newly married. Yes. I'd be remiss to not ask you. <laughs> who who actually married you. <laughs> yeah. A leading question.
2: No, but but uh, I, I mean. Why not, right, so uh, Mr. Ventry, my house counselor for the one of my house counselors for the three years when I was here at feast in andover uh, was he was the officiant at our wedding um, it you know just just thinking about it still gives me uh, goosebumps it was um it was such a beautiful ceremony, and it just felt so uh, humbling and gratifying to have someone like that. Uh, they will lead that ceremony for us. So, so made, we're very what grateful. Made,
1: what made you make the ask? Because I, <laughs> I, I I know Jim and I remember this, and he was nervous. Oh, was he? Oh yeah, he, he was. So he was sweating So he he
2: told me that he hadn't done it. He hadn't done something like this before. No. Ah, oh, no. okay. Well, if he was sweating it, no <laughs> one could tell because it was he was he was amazing. Um, I don't know. I mean, so you only get married once, hopefully. Uh, and so we had no, right, knock on wood, yeah. um, so we had no experience, but we thought that we wanted someone who could embody uh, the kind of, I don't know, the, the kind of approach to life as well as the, I don't want to say philosophy toward love and relationships, but sort of something like that. And I don't know. He, it, Mr. Venturi, is always, to me, uh, embodied. You know, um, so much of what it means to be, like, a good person, a sincere role model. Um, and I think my wife, you know, bless her heart, saw how much I valued uh, his sort of example. And mentorship and uh, and you know when when my wife and I were dating and, and I, we were living in Cam- I was living in Cambridge we we would come out to Andover quite a bit she 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 was uh, gracious enough to right, to put up with my nagging to like let's go let's go visit Andover again um, and so she understood mm-hmm. and, and she actually suggested it hmm. so um, yeah it was great cool yeah it was fantastic.
1: So last question for you, Uh, students at Andover now Mm. interested in climate change, economics, world policy, environmentalism, what's one thing they could do right now or next year as they come back Mm -hmm. to really either jumpstart that angle in their life or make an impact?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, You know, I wish I was more familiar with the, the course offerings and the faculty here now, but... Actually, I can, I'm confident in saying that that's where they should start. I'm, I have no doubt that, uh, you know, the, the legacy that Mr. Perry and Dr. Shaw have left uh, is a strong one. And so, yeah, this fact, I mean, they should reach out to the faculty to learn as much as they can while they're here. Um, but also maybe one thing that is different now relative to when I was here is just the, the access to online content. The world is your oyster. There's so much great work out there. Here's one thing. Incremental investment in figuring out the credibility of a source goes a long way now, meaning that, and I'm sure the faculty here can be great resources, right? Not every study has the same amount of of credibility associated with it. And this is where the media is misleading. Sorry to go on a bit of a, I'll I'll end with this. Uh, um, the news media is, unfortunately, um, beholden to ratings, and that means that often when they cover climate change, they have to make it look like there is a for and an against, or like there is a, you know, you have a, a climate scientist, and then you have a climate denier, as if that is rep- reflective of, of the state of the, you know, the science or something. Um And so similarly, like if you, you know, on social media, right, it's really hard to know how much to trust any given headline or finding, Um, but there is so much really, really good data-based work out there that talks about, you know, why climate change is a problem, how much it is a problem, how it is a problem for a particular part of the world, and what, you know, workable solutions that we have already tried and know that know can work, you know, like, Carbon taxes have been tried in Canada in other countries, and we know that they work. Um, I mean, you can have other modifications to that. You know? So I would encourage students to, when they have, you know, while they have the time, uh, invest in, in, in figuring out what people who, who really have dedicated their lives to thinking about this problem say about it uh, and not get too caught up in the media maelstrom of the opinion battle.
1: Well, Jisung, this has been great. Thanks for joining us. Oh, well,
2: thank you for having me.
0: Every Quarter is produced by the Office of Communication at Phillips Academy in Andover and made possible by a grant from the Abbott Academy Fund, continuing Abbott's tradition of boldness, innovation, and caring. Like what you've heard, spread the word. Share EQ with friends and connect with us using the hashtag everyquarterpodcast. You can also find us at podcast.andover.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Jesse Wallner.